You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to Season 4 of the Western Science Speaks Podcast. We're kicking this season off with an interview with Brian Neff from the Department of Biology here at Western. Brian is one of the smartest fishery researchers we have here in Canada, with work scoping from understanding evolution from a gene perspective, all the way to aquaculture sustainability. A lot of people don't know this, but fishing in Canada is going through something of a cultural referendum. On one side, you have fish hunters who've been doing this for generations. It's built into the fabric of their families. And on the other side, you have fish farming, the more analytically driven, slightly less personable method aimed at creating higher efficiency in aquaculture. Brian and I discussed that at the beginning of the episode and then moved on to a whole bunch of other cool stuff about his research. Here it is. Start with a topic that has become increasingly contentious in recent years, fish farming replacing fishing as the primary form of aquaculture. Can you take us through the differences in this process? Sure, so traditionally most of the fish that we uh, eat or ate uh, came from what's called the capture fisheries. So we went out there and effectively hunted for the fish. They were wild fish would use different techniques. It could be using long lines with hooks, really large uh, nets, or even dragging large chains across the bottom and collecting all the, 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 the fish that we stir up from the bottom. So that's a, a form of fish, uh, fish, you can edit that, right? That's a form of, uh, of fishing. And it used to uh, encompass almost 100% of the fish that we ate. And, the, and most of that came from the ocean. So it's a marine uh, uh, fisheries as opposed to inland freshwater fisheries. And uh, the oceans about maybe 25 years ago were fully tapped. So we were catching every possible fish that could be caught to eat. And uh, it yielded about 100 million tons of fish, most of which we would consume. Some of it would be used for other uh, other products. Pets and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, dog food uh, or even feeding other fish right. you know, as the, we, we saw aquaculture emerge. Aquaculture or fish farming is exactly that. It's farming. It's like farming a cow or a pig. Uh, Most farming involves inland waters. So you dig a hole, fill it with water, and put some fish in it, grow them, you tend them, and then you harvest them. So you collect them and and then put them on market. Uh, Some fish farming involves net pens that float in the ocean. And that's the farming that we're probably most familiar with in Canada. It's the biggest uh, form of farming in Canada, but not globally. So globally, the common form of farming is, you know, dig a hole, fill it with water, and put some fish in it. No net pens. Um, But the net pen uh, fisheries is fairly controversial, particularly in Canada, because it often comes up against the traditional fishing for fish. And, uh, and people who fish traditionally generally don't want to farm for fish. They're two very different professions. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, the aquaculture, fish farming, has been implicated, uh, albeit the evidence is uh, not conclusive, in affecting or being detrimental to, fish, uh, to fishing 
And so the two different types of, uh, of fish production sometimes come uh, at odds. Right. And when, when would you say the pivotal moment where you start to see this transition from fishing being the dominant form and then the rise of fish farming coming in? Yeah, it was probably in the 1980s, uh, and really the change was in the collapse of the, of the world fisheries, you know, the ocean's bounty. We had fully tapped it, we had overtapped it, so it was no longer sustainable. And we saw some of these very lucrative uh, fish stocks collapse, and it made, you know, global news. The one in Canada that we're probably most familiar with would be the collapse of the cod, the Atlantic cod on the East Coast in around 1990. This was, uh, you know, a huge bounty that for Canada and for international fishers. Uh, to tap, and then eventually all the cod one day were just gone, and there weren't any more to catch. And so as a result of the collapse, you know, so we were at globally about 100 million tons per year being pulled from the ocean. That was, you know, most likely unsustainable. We saw a lot of catches just decline. So fishers would go out there, they'd put out their nets, but they wouldn't come back with any fish. Um, uh, those fish were needed in terms of feeding a hungry world, and so we saw aquaculture start to emerge. So more and more farms were developed to replace those fish that we could no longer take from the ocean. Most of that originated in, uh, in Asia, in particular China. China is the single biggest farmer of fish in the world. They produce about half of all the fish that come out of farming. Uh, and that's important for, for, uh, for food security globally, in part because they're feeding their own very large population and therefore not in competition for exports of other people's fish, but also because they're also an exporter of fish. So they provide that, that farm fish to uh, other nations that need it to, 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 to put in their stores for people to eat. Hey, so these fish that have been farmed are almost being reborn because they're having the chance to start a new family, albeit very small. Uh, and so I think something people underrate is that a lot of it is preservation of the fish rather than a GMO where you're genetically modifying it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, um, you know, they're, they're, you're right that most of the fish that are farmed uh, are basically, you know, a, a wild fish, at least originally. Unlike the cow or the pig, which, you know, through many, many generations have been domesticated, so you don't really find a wild pig anymore. You know, it might be the wild boar, but it's not the pig, it's not the cow out there in the wild. Whereas in the case of fish farming, it's still young enough, you know, that there hasn't been a whole lot of domestication. That if we look at a fish like Atlantic salmon that's, you know, heavily uh, farmed in Canada and, say, Norway, it's still very similar to the wild Atlantic salmon. That said, uh, it's a hugely controversial question, uh, and when we look at conservation of wild fishes, they're very, very, so if we look in, in Canada, the, uh, the uh, Species at Risk Act, for example, is one way that we monitor species that, you know, have been overfished and, and maybe are threatened uh, for uh, extinction. They actually delineate what are called uh, evolutionary significant units, and so Atlantic salmon uh, is a species, but they'll distinguish different stocks. So an Atlantic salmon from Maine may be considered different from an Atlantic salmon from Newfoundland. And so they're managed accordingly. So they're considered, in a way, different species, and we want to preserve both of those stocks. So when you throw the Atlantic salmon that's now in a net pen, they're usually viewed as a domesticated species. They're not a wild species, mm -hmm. even though they haven't been domesticated, not like the cows, the pigs, or the chickens have been. 
Mm-hmm. And the first GMO fish for human consumption was approved in August 2017. Have scientists recently discovered how to make GMO fish safe to eat, or was it an issue of overcoming the stigma attached to it? Yeah, that's an interesting story,、uh, and it goes back、uh, about 30 years. So the the first fish that we can now consume, you know, as a GMO, is an Atlantic salmon. And it goes back to your point: is it still an Atlantic salmon?、Um, The researchers, much of it was done in Newfoundland, so here in Canada, and then it was、uh, commercialized eventually by、uh, Aqua Aqua Bounty, which is a company that has an office in Prince Edward Island.、Um, the it was such a new technology, you know, this idea that we could create a fish, we could manipulate the genome and, and change it, put genes into that fish that we wanted, desirable genes,、uh, that it was treated as a drug, not a food. And so,、mm-hmm. to get a drug approved, and 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 they focused in the U.S. because if they could tap the U.S. market, then Canada would fall suit. But also because the U.S. market is far bigger. Was it approved by the FDA? Yes. Interesting. So, you know, it, to get a drug approved is、uh, a, far, a far bigger challenge than to get a food item approved. So the FDA requirements are very very rigorous. And、uh, so they were held to a very, very high standard, and it took、uh, basically 20 years to meet all of those regulations, just like it would if you're developing a brand new drug. It can take 20 years from、mm-hmm. the discovery of the new drug to the point where we're actually using it for human, for human health.、Uh, so you know, fast forward 30 years,、um, it was finally approved, and、um, you know, then enter the stigma and. GMOs generally are not well received by society, so we see a lot of backlash to GMOs to a point where companies that produce a GMO usually try to hide that it's a GMO. It's usually not a seller, you know, put on your package. This is a genetically modified organism. It's generally not what you look for when you're in the grocery store. But yet, I would argue that it's a necessity moving forward. We've had GMOs for decades. Most of them are plants. Uh, most of the, the the vegetables we eat are genetically modified. Usually, it's just around, you know, having resistance to a particular pesticide so that they can grow them effectively and not have insects eat all the crops.、Uh, but in the case of the the fish, this Atlantic salmon that was approved, they manipulated its genome by introducing genes from other fish, and so that makes it a GMO. Albeit, one could argue, you know, if you Uh, naturally breed two different species and create a hybrid. No one would probably argue that's a GMO. What the researchers did is they just took out a gene from a Chinook salmon, a promoter from a from an eel-like fish, and put it into the Atlantic salmon. So we have two genes from other fish in the Atlantic salmon. It's still a fish. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important to note、uh, how important it is when how something enters the public consciousness. And so the fact that it entered as this drug, I think, freaks people out. I don't want to eat some drug fish. It's like some scaled-down Jurassic Park-esque thing, and I think changing that perception is incredibly hard. I think this is why you still see it as a super controversial issue. Yes, and in the case of the Atlantic salmon too, the gene they took from the Chinook salmon was a growth hormone gene, and so it does speak to what you're getting at. It was a hormone. And、uh, that that basically just、uh, causes the fish to grow faster, and that's a good thing for aquaculture. You know, you want to harvest it as quickly as possible so we can eat it. Interestingly, the growth hormone levels in the Atlantic salmon are no higher 
Then the Chinook salmon, and the Chinook are these big salmon yeah. that, you know, I love to eat. Lots of people love to eat them. They're a Pacific salmon. They're, uh, they're part of the capture fisheries in Canada. But uh, the growth hormone levels, all, although not higher than the Chinook salmon, are higher than the Atlantic salmon, and that's why Atlantic salmon are smaller. And so it was treated as a drug in that sense that they didn't compare them to Chinook salmon. They compared the growth hormone levels to other Atlantic salmon that live in the wild. And there are other ways to genetically modify fish other than for consumption, like human food, such as uh, there's fish technologies that allow zebra fish to express jellyfish and sea coral proteins, giving the fish bright red fluorescent colors when viewed in light. Uh, and nobody has a problem when it's for entertainment purposes. It's, it's when consumption comes into play that you see issues arise. Uh, to follow up, are fish the only animal to have their DNA changed for consumption? You mentioned cows and pigs earlier in our talk, uh, but is it solely fish that can be modified for consumption? Yeah, that's, that becomes a, uh, an issue of perspective. So um, when we use these really advanced techniques, like these really, really micro needles to introduce a gene into, a, into an egg that manipulates the genome of the fish, as they did uh, in, in the Atlantic salmon, um, or sometimes they use viruses, you know, to introduce the new, the new DNA or RNA into, uh, in, into an organism to manipulate its genome. Um, it's very, you know, that, that gets labeled immediately as a GMO. You know, we're using these highly advanced technologies to manipulate the genome. But humans have been manipulating the genome of animals for centuries, for, for you know, thousands and thousands of years. This could be anything from our pets. You know, if we think of uh, current cats and dogs, they've been widely bred for particular traits. Like uh, the dog is a single species, but think of all the different types of dogs. Mm -hmm. They look very different. Their genes and their genomes have been manipulated. Much of the food we eat, uh, you know, grow, the crops were manipulated by breeders. They would pick crops that had certain traits. You know, maybe it was more corn or more tasty corn. And they would then breed those individuals to produce their crops in the next generation. And so that's a form of, of selection, uh, even natural selection, where we're manipulating the genomes based on the phenotype, so the traits that a particular organism has, just picking the ones with the best traits to breed. And consequently, we change the genome of the population. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a form of genetic modification, but it's not labeled GMO, nor should it be. Right. And on the surface, this entire issue feels like an issue of class stratification, that you've made blue-collar families where fishing has been something they do for generations, and then you have fish farmers, and maybe it comes across as this elitist way to fish. And... Am I looking too far into it, or do you think that's a real concern with some people? Yeah, that's an interesting perspective, and probably a Canadian and North American perspective, because so most farming in, uh, most farming in the world is done in Asia, and in particular in China, and it is not an advanced industry by any means. It's done by locals, by peasants, by people who live in towns that have you know, very little electricity or clean running water. Um, the, that, that farming is literally, you know, dig a hole and fill it with water or you find a pond and you remove all the stuff that's in it and then you put fish in it. And the most commonly farmed fish is carp. 
And so they'd fill a pond or even a rice paddy with carp. And, and they don't feed them, they just tend them. So they make sure they don't leave or go anywhere. And when they're big enough, they harvest them. Um, the perception in, in, uh, in North America might be that you know, aquaculture is an advanced industry and so much as in the ones that we hear most about are these ocean net pens where we're fishing you know, these highly expensive crops, so to speak, mm -hmm. the salmon, the Atlantic salmon or the Pacific salmon. And those are, are cash crops, like that's an expensive fish. Um, and so it might have that, you know, that, that uh, idea or notion that, that fish farming is, it, it, you know, a super advanced industry and it's putting, you know, some advanced industry against the, the, the traditional fishing mm -hmm. ways of life. I would argue, though, that fishing is also become, especially fishing in North America, is a hugely advanced industry. Um, you know, some of the lucrative salmon fisheries, the tuna fisheries, you know, these are massive boats that they go out to fish with. And they have, uh, they have helicopters on them, and the helicopter pilot flies around looking for the fish, radios back to the fleet, here's the fish. Then they come out, the big trawlers come out, and they, you know, unwind thousands or hundreds of, of kilometers of net to catch the fish. Uh, some of the big boats that are offshore fishing boats have the full processing of the fish right on board the boat. So the fish comes in the back, they process it, out the front comes your canned tuna or your frozen fish. So it's also, a, it can be a very advanced industry as well. Mm. Uh, and I think... Our, my generation and your generation, maybe the optimization of certain fields and not just fishing, whether it be sports or any sort of hobby in any field, how the next generation uses technology to get higher efficiency optimization, something that always frustrates people with tradition, I think. Uh, anyway, let's switch it to your research. Uh, you look at some of the genes underlying certain adaptions. One of the major themes in your research is understanding the genes underlying adaptation. Can you discuss that? Yeah, sure. So I take uh, an evolutionary approach to understanding adaptation. And what an adaptation is uh, in my field, it's defined as basically the gene or the gene variants, what we call alleles, that allow an organism to persist well in its environment and to reproduce. So basically to live and then to reproduce, produce lots of kids. Um, the gene, the genome and the genes underlying adaptation, uh, there's been a long history of uh, work looking at the genes that underlie adaptations. But really in the last 10 or 15 years with the advent of technologies that allow us to actually look at the DNA of organisms. So for example, the sequencing that we can now do it opened up uh, a new understanding of adaptation. So we could really get at these different alleles, the different base pairs that are in the genome, and how that affects you know, one fish versus another fish's ability to survive in its environment, perhaps to, to guess at how it will survive in a future environment, and ultimately to reproduce, which is important if you want a fish to persist. Uh, some of the genes that we look at in uh, my, my lab pertain to um, thermal tolerance is one example. This is something that's getting a lot of press, in turn, a lot of attention in terms of global warming. So we know that our waters are warming. And a big question, given that, that uh, fish are ectotherms, so they don't regulate their, their body temperatures like you or I would, 
they're very prone to changes in, in temperature of the water. And so we try to get at the genetic basis of what we call thermal performance or thermal tolerance, so their ability to perform well in water of different temperatures. And so that's going to be important in understanding whether or not a fish will persist, say, 50 years from now in a particular water body, uh, and or what we might be able to do to allow it to persist, including maybe going back to that idea of GMOs. Do we go in and actually start manipulating the genomes of these fish to ensure that they have future adaptations you know, to this changing environment? And your group specifically works at restoring salmon what are some of the difficulties you face regarding the evolutionary resilience of salmon? Yeah, the, the salmon fisheries in Canada is a complex issue. One, because it's multifaceted. So the traditional challenge is so that the, the populations have been decimated. You know, the Pacific populations uh, are now down to around 5% of their historic run sizes. Run size is basically the number of fish that come back to, uh, to reproduce, and it's a, a nice, easy way to track. Uh, how many fish there are. So they go out to the ocean, they feed, they grow, and then when they reproduce, they come back to the freshwater streams, and we can count them pretty easily as they swim up these streams. Uh, so the historic run sizes are down around 5%, and basically, you know, they're, they're, they're gone, or they're almost gone. So a lot of them are threatened or endangered, and so this is a serious concern. Um, there, it's a multifaceted issue, starting with, for one, we just caught too many of them. You know, we ate too many of them, so we fished them unsustainably. Not enough came back to reproduce, to produce that next generation of fish for us to fish. Other issues, though, are around habitat destruction, and so, in particularly with salmon, because they come back and breed in these streams, we also live around these streams. We built big cities like Vancouver uh, and, and other cities. Um, that we change the landscape and the ecology of those streams and that too can affect whether or not the fish are able to persist in them. For example, if we build a dam for hydropower, which we do a lot of in Canada and globally, the fish can't you know, jump over a giant dam and so they can't get back to where they want to reproduce. And how do you compensate for a shortcoming such as that? Yeah, so there's a big movement uh, now to actually get rid of as many dams as we can. Uh, particularly for fish that are anadromous, so these fish that you know live both in the streams but also want to go out to the ocean. Uh, that's not going to that's going to take a long time. There's a lot of dams, but there's a movement to move away from damming rivers for whatever reason, whether it's just to hold back water or whether it's for hydropower. Uh, there's a, a lot of restoration work now going on around streams to try to uh, rehabilitate the the riparian zones, which so is the shores of the streams, to make them more natural. But also there are uh, more significant interventions where we might go in and take the last fish that would swim up a stream and we put them in what's called a, a live gene bank. So you could think of it as um, uh, almost like a zoo or an ark where they're all brought in and they're kept in captivity. So they're kept in, in you know, big ponds or something. Uh, and they're bred in those ponds with the hopes of one day re-releasing them back into their natural environment once we've had time to restore that natural environment to a state where they could survive. With respect to aquaculture and Canada's role at the forefront of that transition, what are some of the new practical technologies that your lab is helping implement? Yeah, again, this is a quite, quite a distinction between Canada and North America, say Norway, from you know, the rest of the world, particularly Asia, where most farming is done. 
So in, if we go to Asia, the, the, their, their movement is actually away from the high-tech aquaculture. And so they want to remove net pens uh, and instead focus on fish that you don't have to feed. So you put them in a, in a pond and they feed on the natural uh, foods that are produced by the water. So they tend to eat very low in the food chain. So they're herbivores, so to speak, uh, like a carp. In North America, uh, our movement has predominantly been around net pen farming of these high, high cash uh, fish like salmon. Uh, and there, the technology, the, the movement in the technologies is really to ensure that these net pens and the fish themselves minimally impact the environment where the net pen's floating. So they're typically in the ocean around the coast. And the idea is to make sure that they don't pollute the environment uh, around the net pens too much, and that pollution is, you know, just all the poop that the fish uh, uh, release because there could be millions of them held in these net pens. All the food that isn't eaten, so they throw in the food. They try to make sure it gets all eaten, but eventually, uh, some of it floats away or sinks out of the net pen, and so that can be significant organic loading in the area, uh, as well as potential disease, and that's a major concern. So those diseases can be treated sometimes with uh, with uh, with therapeutics in the uh, in the net pens. But uh, the concern is that they might transmit those diseases before they're treated to, to wild fish that are swimming, you know, by the, the net pens. So there's been a movement to try to create fish that don't need those therapeutics, so that have these heightened immune systems, and that's something my lab works on. Uh, but also to try to reduce the impact or, or the, create a barrier between the fish in the net pen and the fish that aren't in the net pen. And so the new technologies include not using nets anymore. Nets, you, you know, are obviously very porous. Lots of water mm. comes in and out, but instead using a closed containment technology. Uh, and that's where you basically have what's like a giant floating Tupperware in the ocean, something made of a plastic where the water is controlled. The water that comes in is controlled. The water that goes out is controlled. The problem with that technology is that uh, it requires that we pump water, unlike a net pen, which just uses natural currents to, to move water. Pumping water requires electricity. Electricity is expensive, so it's more expensive than traditional net, net pen farming. And so the profit margin you know, is going to shrink, and there isn't a high profit margin in fish farming. And so right now, it's not economical to switch to these new, these new technologies. Last question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about Canada's aquaculture future? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm optimistic in the sense that globally we must invest in fish farming. You know, human population is growing. Uh, no other food industry is growing like fish farming. It's the only way that we're going to feed a hungry, hungry world, a hungry world that needs uh, animal protein. Uh, Canada is a leader. Uh, it has great environmental policies. Uh, so I think we can be a leader globally around fish farming. That said, um, there is a, a social element as well that needs to be tackled. And there's no real timeline when you're dealing with, uh, with uh, issues that are controversial or seen as controversial in society. And so fishers and fish farmers uh, are generally different people. They're different uh, professions. And uh, at the moment, there's still a lot of tension between fish farming and traditional fishing. And who, you know, I don't know. It's going to be a, a long time, I think, before those uh, challenges are reconciled. 
All right, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. We'll be releasing 12 more episodes bi-weekly until we get to 2020. If you did enjoy this and feel compelled to share it with your students, your prof, or whatever it be, we really appreciate it. And I'm really excited for you to hear from our team at Western this semester. I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.